Welcome to the Sword and the Trial, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longsword. And I'm Tom Askell. Hey, welcome to Rod Pod, uh, Rod Pod 3.0? The Rodcast, yeah, 3.0. I think this is the third time we're going to have Rod Martin uh, on the Founders Sword and Trial podcast. Rod, welcome. It's good to have you again. Good to be with you. Yeah, we might ought to just start calling you co-host here. I think co-host would be good. What exactly have we done to you, Rod, to convince you to keep coming and talking to us? Hey, you guys just ask and, and you shall receive. <laughs> hey, well, I like that. I, I need more, some other I need more friends I like that. Right now. <laughs> yes. Hey, thanks for uh, tuning in here to the Sword in the Trial today. Um, so if you've listened to our podcast before, you you have to go back if you haven't seen him, but two great uh, podcasts with Rod Martin. And he's, uh, I always say futurist first, he's but a there's a lot of other futurist, titles. Futurist, entrepreneur, um, tech guru. He's a part of the PayPal mafia that got that going. Um, goodness, Rod, I'm trying to think. Uh, hedge fund manager. You just, do you ever sleep? <laughs> not really. <laughs> not really. Uh you know, we've done some interesting things. I was president of the National Federation of Republican Assemblies. I've worked on Capitol Hill. I've been policy director for my be back in a different life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we get around a little bit. And probably most pertinent to your audience, I'm on the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, that's right. You have been very active both in our state here in Florida in Southern Baptist Life and then in the National Convention, the SBC as well. So Rod and Sherry, his wife, wonderful wife, uh, are faithful Christians and been longtime friends and friends of founders. So man, we're just delighted to have you here. What we wanted to talk to you about today is uh, what's on everybody's mind day in and day out for the last several weeks is this pandemic and how COVID-19 has impacted uh, our world and our nation particularly, but more, then more narrowly trying to think through some of the economic uh, impacts that have taken place and what opportunities might be there and how Christians should be thinking about this. And we, we still believe in God. We still believe the word is true. And so all the things that God's taught us from his word have not changed. And yet we're having to live differently in light of this pandemic. So man, from your vantage point as a businessman, how have you navigated this and how have you led your team to think about what's going on? Well, first of all, it's very hard. I mean, this is, this is unprecedented. You can go back, for example, I guess in, in the dark ages, like, I don't know, um, uh, the Spanish flu, but in modern times, this just has not been handled this way. Mm. And you can say, well, this this reduces the death count. I, I don't think that's true because, honestly, that isn't how it was sold. Mm-hmm. We're, we're being told that now, but, but this was sold as a means of flattening the curve, by which is meant you would keep the number of cases in hospitals low enough that they weren't overwhelmed. And, and that's a fair thing. That, that makes sense. If you're expecting 3 million dead, as the original model suggested we ought to, uh, it, it becomes very essential that you, you flatten the curve in the, in the sense it was originally pitched, and you, you prevent hospitals from being so overwhelmed that people are, are dying in, in vast and, and exceptional and needless numbers 
because they simply can't get care. But the truth of the matter is that isn't what's happened at all. Those models have been consistently horribly wrong. And we have actually had hospitals sitting almost completely empty because we banned everything that was labeled elective. And by the way, elective has included cancer surgery and all kinds of things that I don't think anybody would have ever thought of as elective before the last two months. Really, really serious things are not being done. We're actually seeing hospitals go under. We're seeing private practice groups go under because they aren't seeing patients. They're not allowed to see patients if they aren't COVID patients, which is just catastrophic for the healthcare system. And, and of course, we have 30 million people unemployed. We have all manner of small businesses sitting idle that are not able to do that. They function like most people in the world do. They pay their bills out of their receipts every, you know, for an individual pay period. You can say, well, people ought to have savings for up to a year. Yeah, that's fine, but they don't. So, so 30 million unemployed is reasonably catastrophic. And I, I, I honestly, I understand that given the models that we were working with in February and March, it made sense to do what we've done. But a Christian needs to look at more than just fear because truthfully, we aren't supposed to have a spirit of fear. A Christian needs to look at the entirety of the situation. And, and the truth of the matter is we are murdering small business in this country, not to mention poorer and especially uh, lower and middle middle class individuals. This is, this is going to have a catastrophic effect on children's education. They are not going to get that time back. And any education specialist can tell you the, the disaster on a rolling basis for the rest of someone's life if they miss more than a certain amount of school at any particular point in their education. There are just a lot of consequences to this that are really, really terrible. And we must understand as a Christian community that there's more going on here than did somebody wear a mask or go to the beach. There's, there are a lot of needs that the church is facing because of how we've responded to this, but also that the church is going to need to address with hurting people in this country and around the world. Rod, you mentioned the um, the models that were originally presented and even the rationale that was given for uh, the social distancing and the sheltering in place um, that we have seen. You mentioned it wasn't um, stated in the beginning to um, reduce deaths, but to uh, flatten the curve. But you referenced these models. Um, you know, you're we you've played in these spaces a lot, both politically and then and even trying to predict as best we can uh, what might happen. Watching trends. I've been thinking about the need to go back and do an autopsy on those models. What was, what was put in? What was said? Why was it said? Um, really, just what happened? Now we might need more time before we can really understand. But from your vantage point, what did happen? Why did we have the models that we did? Um, do you see places where mistakes were made? Things that we can learn uh, from as we look back at what occurred. I think it's a little too early to say definitively, but I do think we're going to need to look backward at it. Uh, the problem with looking back at it, particularly in our election year, is that that will be an entirely political mm -hmm. process and everyone involved in it will just be scoring cheap political points. 
So I'm not sure that we're ever going to know. But what we do know is that yet again, we have scientific computer models that are just ludicrously off base. I mean, we started with we were going to lose as many as 10 million people in the United States. And that's about 10 minutes after we're being told by the World Health Organization that it can't even be transmitted from person to person. That was, by the way, January 14th, which is not that long ago. And, you know, we, we have all of these all of these problems in the initial data collection, which we are discovering now conclusively are the result of an actual disinformation campaign by the Chinese Communist Party. So make no mistake. Whatever the actual source of the virus, whether it's a diseased bat in a wet market or the Wuhan uh, bioweapons laboratory, makes really no difference, although our government does now think it was the latter. What matters is that once that virus escaped into the wild, the Chinese went to enormous lengths to disguise what was happening in China They broke all of the rules that the World Health Organization imposed on all of us everywhere uh, in the aftermath of the SARS outbreak in 2006, which, by the way, was also China. And and so uh, literally uh, 100 to 200,000 people are dead needlessly because of the malfeasance of the Chinese Communist Party. We must not lose sight of that reality. Nevertheless, the models... Uh, the models were fed bad data for the reason just stated. That's a big part of it. So uh, you get some crazy numbers like the up to 10 million number that we were getting from uh, Goldman Sachs report. I was reading probably six weeks ago. And uh, that was sort of a three to 10 range. And then uh, that was cut dramatically to 100,000 to 250,000 range. And then that was cut to about a 60,000 range. Now it's probably looking like it'll be around 100. Uh, it's important to remember that people will die in the six to 750,000 range this year just in the United States of cardiovascular disease. And a lot of those people are not getting treatment right now because of what we're doing. As in, uh, I got a report um, probably been three weeks ago now Uh, The number of people dying at home of cardiovascular incidents in New York City had multiplied 800% in the preceding two weeks because they cannot be treated in a New York hospital, which is just insane. And we've gotten these reports uh, now, you know, New York City is, is telling, issuing do not resuscitate orders. The people who've had a heart attack and they're in the ambulance, if they if they stop having a pulse, you may not resuscitate them. That's just murder. That's just crazy. That is almost as bad as the five northeastern, all Democrat states that have, on a civil rights basis, quote unquote, forced nursing homes and assisted living facilities to take COVID nineteen patients and not even allow them to ask if these patients have it or have been tested for it. So so it is no wonder that, uh, depending on the estimate of the day, something between 19% and 24% of all of the deaths in greater New York are elderly people in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Well, Andrew Cuomo did that, and so did his neighboring Democrat governors. 
they did this because it pursues their their long-standing social justice agenda and completely ignores public health. So, yes, there are some things we're going to need to go back and examine, but obviously that's all going to be taken politically. And I don't know how much of that is going to make a difference to anybody except at the ballot box, where by all means it certainly should. You know, Rod, that's, uh, you, you mentioned several things that make this really complicated to try to think through with uh, a right judgment and, and with proper care. You've you got the disease itself, which we know is very, very bad. It's a bad disease. It kills people. And then you've got the handling of the disease and, and how to communicate what it does when there's limited amount of knowledge. And so many of the protocols put in place and suggestions and even policies that were initiated were based more on what we didn't know than what we did know. And that always leads things to uh, be kind of dicey. And then you've got the political angle on it where people are not wanting to waste this crisis and try to use this crisis. And so with all of those, there's probably other things I'm not even thinking about that factor into how this pandemic is being handled and how it's being described and then the things that are being done in the midst of it. How should Christians respond? I mean, how are we to um, respond to our governmental officials, some of whom seem to be... uh, thinking with common sense and some of whom seem to be uh, off the rails, quite honestly, in some of the policies that they are advocating in the, in the wake of this. How should Christians respond to this? Here in Florida, you and I, we live in a state where our governor seemingly has operated with care and caution, and we are nowhere near what all of the pundits were saying we were going to be just a few weeks ago. But that's not true in Oregon. It's not true in New York. How do Christians think in both of those scenarios? How should we think in Florida? How should we think in in New York? Uh, Well, you actually make a really good point in mentioning Florida. Florida uh, has been lambasted in the international media for not basically doing exactly what Andrew Cuomo has done. And Ron DeSantis is just a mass murderer, and obviously we're going to have more deaths in Florida than, than there are in New York and all these terrible things. Oh, but wait, we have a tiny fraction of the death count in New York. We are actually a larger state, not geographically, but by population, by a couple million people. Uh, we are the only state in the union to have more elderly people, and of course, uh, most of the people dying of this disease are, in fact, elderly. They mm-hmm. also, most of them have multiple comorbidities, but but Florida's full of those. And yet, we actually have um, between 2 and 4% of the death count. Uh, we are, according to Google, as I speak, uh, we're sitting at 1,399 deaths in Florida, which is just staggering because that number was supposed to be, I I don't recall off the top of my head, but it was something like 40 or 50,000 by now because Ron DeSantis is the devil. And that's just simply not worked out. Whereas the hero of the mainstream media uh, has, has a rather large percentage of all of the deaths in the United States. In fact, if you draw a circle around greater New York, so, so the city of New York plus, a chunk of Connecticut and, and New Jersey, basically. So, so the area of you know, greater New York, uh, you're talking about 60% of all the deaths in the country. Mm. 
that's extraordinary. And that is a massive policy failure. And, and it, it, there's nothing else you can say about it. You can say, oh, well, population density and so forth. Well, we've got other areas of the country that have pretty good population density that aren't seeing anything like that. Uh, so, so we're seeing real policy solutions in the real world really work one way or the other. Ron DeSantis' approach has been highly successful. If you look at Texas, which has several of the largest cities in the United States, oh my goodness, that death count actually drops to 884. In, in a much bigger state with, with several very large cities. So how come Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis are so much better? I mean, because they are. Their responses have worked better and were widely criticized in the media as being effectively uh, prescriptions for mass murder. Now, what is a prescription for mass murder is five left-wing states in the Northeast shoving COVID patients into nursing homes and assisted living facilities without even alerting or allowing to be alerted the operators of those facilities to know that these people have coronavirus. That's, that is putting these people in a confined space with the most endangered population and just watching them die. And as long as we're talking about public policy, we have seen a marked difference between, again, let's take Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida, who, when they gave their, their shelter-in-place orders, explicitly, actually in the first line of the Florida executive order, state that churches are within, uh, within the group of essential services versus numerous blue states that are actually arresting people for sitting in their car in a field with their windows up participating in a drive-in church service. That just boggles the mind. Now we are hearing... Uh, I believe it's San Francisco, again, to the left of Stalin. Uh, San Francisco wants churches to hand over their membership list so they can track church members. It's Kansas City, does that too, yeah. This is, this, is just, this is just the inner totalitarian in every socialist screeching to burst out. Rod, this if you is were to... what the left always does, and they are using this crisis to, again— Smash the First Amendment at every opportunity, in all of its particulars, I might add. And I'm not saying we shouldn't take reasonable precautions. I'm saying that tracking church members is an unreasonable burden on the free exercise of religion. And moreover, look at what they consider essential. Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott see church as essential. These blue states see abortion clinics and and marijuana dispensaries and you know anything like that that's essential but churches must die and i don't think you could have a starker contrast and i think it tells you exactly where the two parties are in 2020 right if you try to help some people get their bearings like help christians here get their bearings for what has happened around them with some of the um draconian measures that have been taken compare it to say 20 years ago what would have happened if something like this occurred 20 years ago? What would have happened politically? What would have happened culturally? You know, if you're, if you've got a 40 year old Christian right now, 20 years ago, that, that Christian is 20. If you find a 30 year old um, woman 
here listening to this podcast 20 years ago in the year 2000, um, she was 10. And so things, things have certainly changed over those 20 years. Um, how so? What, what are the differences and how do we get here? I think the parties had diverged pretty broadly on a lot of these points by 2000. I, I, I think it would be wrong to think that we were a lot closer together 20 years ago. Uh, we were probably a lot, a lot closer together 30, and we were a lot closer together 40. Um, but 20 years ago, um, we were somewhat closer together, and you certainly wouldn't see the outright attacks on Christianity, on churches. And, and by the way, that's, that's not an overstatement. Um, we were just told the other day um, by Justin Trudeau, who is a great hero of many Democrats in the United States, and of course he's the Prime Minister of Canada, and he met with a Baptist pastor actually about a religious liberty issue just the other day, and I posted about this on Facebook. He literally is quoted as saying that Christians are the worst people in Canadian society. That is the official pronouncement of the head of government of a of a NATO ally. And and the Democrats are right there with him. You don't have to ask me, ask Andrew Cuomo, who said pro lifers are not welcome in the state of New York. Or or Ralph Northam, you know, Governor Blackface. He's he's out there advocating for actual infanticide after the child is born. Well it doesn't matter if you get it done in the first nine months, we'll do it in month ten. And and so there is a there is a just stark difference that that we really didn't see twenty years ago. Another example, uh, Franklin Graham's Samaritan's Purse has been operating a field hospital in Central Park. They've been seeing patients who otherwise might not have gotten seen. Uh, they certainly thought they would be seeing more patients than they actually did, but because we all thought that all the hospitals were going to be overflowing, which turned out not to be true, but. They were there. They were there early. They're spending their own money out of their own pocket. They're seeing patients. Patients are living because they're there. They have gotten nothing but attacks, including by guys like Jonathan Merritt, by the way, uh, in, in the mainstream media, about how they shouldn't be allowed to be there because Franklin Graham is against gay marriage. Okay, so you're just saying outright. And by the way, those attacks are from uh, the head of the city council in, in New York, from, from Mayor de Blasio, from from all the media outlets, and, and the united position is we would rather have people die than a Christian treat them and they live, even if they are gay, even if they are you know transgendered and a socialist. We don't care. They need to die rather than Franklin Graham have anything to do with their cure. That is a level of, of anti-Christian bigotry that absolutely was not spoken. It might have existed, but it was not spoken 20 years ago. It is an extraordinary difference. And so when somebody like Al Mohler comes out and says, well, uh, I, I guess I'm going to have to be for Trump in 2020, because despite the fact that I was adamantly against him four years ago, the Democrats have gone so far, not just to the left, but against Christians, not just against Christianity, not just against our beliefs, but against us individually, that I really don't have a choice. I'm going to have to vote against them. 
I, I think that's very telling. Now, I would suggest to Al that he should have done that four years ago because they were already there and they were already pretty blatant about it. Uh, we're talking about a Democratic Party that actually booed God, the mere mention of God on national television at their 2012 Democratic National Convention. I, I, I don't know how much plainer they could have been, but nevertheless, you know, politics is about addition. So, Al, welcome uh, to those of us who realize they hate us. Hey, Rod, um, what do you see coming in the recovery? You know, I've read a couple of different uh, guys that have speculated on this and, and been trying to learn about the different uh, models going forward. Are we going to see a, a V? Are we going to see a U? Are we going to see a Nike swoosh? Are we going to see a Z or an L? Do you, do you have any thoughts about what's what are we looking at here in terms of recovery? What do you, What's your uh, best guess from this vantage point about what the – next 18 months look like? It definitely depends on some variables that we don't know yet. So so let's start with this. If we had closed down for two weeks, it could have easily been a V. Um, it has now been longer, needless to say. Uh, we now have 30 million people unemployed. Um, that's hard to come back from. Several major companies uh, declared bankruptcy yesterday. Uh, there are an awful lot of little restaurants all up and down the beaches of Florida that won't be back. Uh, there's not going to be someone who just steps up and takes them over. There are a lot. There's a lot of personal destruction here that can't really be undone. And PPP and EIDL and the other programs that the government is sort of engaging in, uh, are sort of engaging in. Uh, I stress are sort of. They are not solutions. They are sort of holding the line a little bit for some. And and so if you can get this brought to a relatively swift end, and if you can not have a big spike in deaths immediately after, because who knows, maybe that is what happens, then I think you could have a U. I think it's very likely that you could see some reasonable uh, progress in Q3 and a, a pretty strong recovery begin in Q4. And maybe maybe we dodge the worst of it. But you see what's happening. You've got people like Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who is Rahm Emanuel's big brother. You mentioned never let a crisis go to waste. Well, that's Rahm Emanuel's quote. He was, of course, chief of staff for Barack Obama. He worked in the Clinton administration, and he was mayor of Chicago. His brother, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, was one of the architects of Obamacare, and uh, he is advocating fervently. By the way, he's also uh, a, a close associate of Hillary Clinton and is a senior fellow at her think tank. Uh, Ezekiel Emanuel is, is calling for an 18-month shutdown. Well, that's a death sentence for every small business in America and half of the big ones. Mm. That is a guaranteed Great Depression level event that would last at least a decade. And we know where old Ezekiel's at and his brother. They want to nationalize the entire economy. They are real socialists. So, of course, that's their solution. And we look at places such as Denmark and Sweden, and we see that they have taken a diametrically opposite approach to, to handling this outbreak. 
uh, as compared to the United States. Sweden's getting hit in, in the media right now a lot because uh, their death rate isn't uh, perhaps quite where uh, Morning Joe would like it to be. But actually, they seem to be establishing herd immunity, and they seem to be functioning reasonably well. Denmark is doing exceptionally well. So we see that there are several approaches that can be taken. And what I expect we're going to see in the United States is a, a very patchwork quilt approach where I think you're going to see several blue states, uh, such as Michigan and, and possibly New York, continue locking things down a great deal longer than might be scientifically necessary because they've either bought into this tremendous fear complex or in the alternative, they just believe that a bad economy helps beat Donald Trump and helps elect Joe Biden. And honestly, if I'm if, if you look at how particularly the governor of Michigan has been acting and how draconian her policies have been, particularly against Christian people, it it seems perfectly reasonable to think that she might be thinking more about November than about the number of COVID deaths. And so I think you're going to see some of that. I don't know that that's going to work for them. I think the parts of the country that actually come back economically more strongly are going to be a great chastisement to a lot of people in those places that continue to be forced into greater and greater poverty. And the net result of that may very well be a, an electoral revolt in places like Michigan, but that all remains to be seen. I, we just don't have the variable uh, known well enough for me to be able to say that dogmatically, but I think that's kind of where we're headed. Mm. So what would you say to uh, your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters? Uh, we're at this point now in the pandemic in Florida, Texas, Georgia, other places are opening up. Uh, our church is looking forward to being back inside of our building. We've been worshiping outside of our building the last few weeks. So things are, are taking steps toward normal. Uh, yesterday, there were restaurants in Florida that were allowed to open up at 25% capacity. What would you say to Christians at this stage? How should we be thinking going forward uh, with the economic dimensions of it, uh, the spiritual dimensions of it as well? What should our attitude be? What should our uh, thought processes be? What should our outlook be? Well, obviously, you know, our first duty uh, after loving the Lord our God is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we shouldn't be doing unreasonable things. Um, I wouldn't encourage anybody to go hug everybody, you know, during the fellowship time at this point. I, I think that's probably uh, foolish. And, you know, to the degree we can take reasonable precautions, I absolutely think we should. Uh, at the same time, it is not kind, it is not loving to forget that there are millions of people who actually need a paycheck, that it is not loving for them not to be able to pay their mortgage or their rent. It is not loving to continue having uh, the, the number of child abuse cases and domestic abuse cases skyrocket, the number of suicides skyrocket, because we're doing something that honestly is a very, very questionable validity and utility. So there has to be a reasonable balance. There always has to be a reasonable balance in, in basically everything. So, so I think Christians should be mindful 
that when someone says, as one prominent Christian leader recently did, that this is a matter of, uh, you know, pitting people's health against the economy, you know, with the connotation that the economy is somehow people just having trinkets and toys and, you know, watching football games or something. No, the economy is taking your kid to the doctor. In fact, the doctor even being there, because if the doctor can't make money, the doctor can't pay his mortgage and the doctor can't serve the public. And you say, oh, well, socialized medicine. Okay, well, if that's your goal, socialize everything and make everyone work for the government, then I guess this is an effective strategy. But if you're not seeking that, then loving your neighbor also includes making sure that they're not just healthy, but, but actually able to eat and live indoors. And, and so a Christian needs to have a wise, gentle as doves and sharp as serpents approach to all of this. We need to take reasonable measures for public health, but we also need to take reasonable measures to keep people from abject, grinding, immediate poverty. And, and those things are not those are not, things are not in opposition to one another. They are a holistic view of the human person as Christians are called to have in all things. Amen, Rod. Well, that's a good word, brother. It has been so good to have you on to discuss these matters. And we actually, uh, you know, you referenced the Southern Baptist Convention earlier and uh, the whole COVID deal has shut down the Southern Baptist Convention this year in 2020. And there's been all sorts of implications from that. So we want you to stick around a little bit. We have the Armory uh, where we have a number of resources for those who are Founders Alliance members. And we want to do a little interview with you and hear uh, the inside scoop with the executive committee, since you're an executive committee member and all that's gone down and how we're going to be navigating the waters with the Southern Baptist Convention in the wake of this COVID. So uh, thanks again for listening to The Sword and the Trial today. Also, for fan members, thank you to all of you who are fan members. And if you want to catch Rod Martin's entire By What Standard interview, that also is uh, being uploaded into the armory. And so uh, join the fam and check out all of that extra resources that are available there. Thanks again for listening to The Sword and the Trial.